Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and S.E. Needham Jewelers, offering custom jewelry consultations with on-premise designers and goldsmiths. Open 10 through 7, Monday through Saturday. Located in the middle of the block at the sign of the clock. Information at seneedham.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Whether the issue is a pandemic, vaccinations, or any number of other public health issues, a major challenge for advocates is communicating crucial information in a way that builds trust and changes behavior. Today, we're going to hear a full episode from the new podcast, This Is Her Place. And in this episode, we'll hear the stories of three women who rose to that challenge. Dr. Angela Dunn, the current state epidemiologist, who of course is on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic. Annie Dodge Wanika, a tribal elder and public health advocate who worked in the Navajo Nation in the mid-20th century. And Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon, a driving force behind one of the country's first state-sponsored boards of health. This is Her Place is a podcast that tells the remarkable stories of Utah women past and present and all their diversity. And in addition to hearing this complete episode, we'll talk a bit with the podcast co-host Naomi Watkins, who is an educational leader, women's advocate, and community builder who believes that diverse representation plays a vital role in the empowerment of young people. She co-authored Champions of Change, 25 Women Who Made History, a book written with Catherine Kitterman, illustrated by Brooke Smart as part of her work for Better Days 2020. And uh, uh, Naomi Watkins is an expert uh, in teacher education and literacy pedagogy. She earned her Ph.D. from University of Utah and uh, lives in Salt Lake City. That's where we've uh, reached her. Naomi Watkins, uh, welcome to the program. Hi, good morning. Uh, we're good to talk to you. Haven't talked to you for a little while. Um, I know. Hi, Tom. <laughs> when we're hard at work on these episodes, one of which we're gonna we're gonna hear we we uh, we're interacted with each other um, more often. So that's is five episodes in season one. Uh, season two uh, still to come. Um, and I want to mention here at the the top, there's an event you can come and interact with the This Is Her Place podcast team, and that's coming up on Wednesday, uh, a week from today, on the twenty first. Um, 7.30 in the evening at the Ellen Eccles Theater in downtown Logan as part of, uh, presented by Cash Arts. So on stage, we'll have the podcast team and, and some of us joining a, a, by a Zoom, and I'll be moderating discussion. We'll hear clips from the, sound clips from the show, uh, from the various episodes, and, and take you behind the scenes. The, the uh, tickets are pay-as-you-can, and the uh, event is socially distanced, and masks will be um, will be encouraged. We, we hope you'll come if you can. You can get tickets by going to cashearts.org and then finding the This Is Her Place uh, event. So Naomi Watkins, before we jump into this particular episode, uh, maybe pulling out a bit, um, This Is Her Place. Give us your one-minute elevator pitch for what This Is Her Place is. So This Is Her Place is a podcast that ties the stories of Utah women from the past to the present, um, and I think people will find, especially if they listen to this episode, that the, the issues and themes of the past are still very contemporary today, and that could either be very disheartening or heartening, depending on your outlook on that. And this, uh, I chose this episode for obvious reasons. Another coronavirus spike, right? The governor just out yesterday with, uh, with a, new, a new plan to perhaps uh, try to curb this. And so the issues that... Uh, 
you know, are are being dealt with today, were were being dealt with back in the times of Annie Dodge-Wanika and, and Dr. Martha Cannons. As you say, it could be encouraging or discouraging, depending on how you look right. at this. Um, it might be helpful just to give a very brief uh, overview of some of the other episodes. For example, um, one of the, the very first episode, um, Utah or, or Salt Lake County Sheriff uh, Rosie Rivera, who's on the front lines in law enforcement today, uh, paired with Claire Ferguson, Maybe just tell us a little bit about Claire Ferguson. So Claire Ferguson was a young 20-something-year-old Salt Lake woman who became one of the first women deputy sheriffs in the United States, which is pretty impressive. Um, You know, she was a deputy sheriff right after statehood here in Utah around 1897, and she was known for her um, impeccable skills with shooting a revolver. and she, uh, you know, was also a suffragist, was involved in the political um, world here and nationally. Another episode, I just mentioned this one, um, episode three, putting their art into it, Minerva Teichert uh, from the past, Ruby Chacon and, uh, and Jen Howarth uh, from, the, from the present. We'll talk a little bit more after we hear this episode. Uh, before we jump into this particular episode, which we're calling A Matter of Trust, uh, anything you'd like to say about this, uh, this episode? Um, mostly I just think it's so timely. Um, and like you said, Tom, you know, we have new, new, I don't know, not regulation, new public health wording about the coronavirus. And we see Dr. Angela Dunn, um, leading that task force. So women have been involved in public health for a very long time here in the state. All right. We'll, uh, we'll, uh, reach back out to Naomi Watkins after we hear this episode. It's about 39 minutes. Uh, I wanted to give you the full episode here. I'll give you a taste of This Is Her Place, a new podcast. You can find it at thisisherplace.org. And uh, again, that event, you can go behind the scenes with uh, This Is Her Place, uh, an event at Cash Arts, Ellen Eccles Theater, 7.30 in the evening, a week from today, Wednesday the 21st. And uh, Utah Public Radio is one of the sponsors. Uh, We hope you'll come socially distanced, masked, uh, encouraged, and uh, tickets are pay as you can. Uh, You can go to Cash Arts dot org for for tickets so here is a, a complete episode from this is her place podcast we titled this a matter of trust <laughs> By the 1950s, tuberculosis rates had plummeted across most of the United States. But the disease still ravaged Native American communities, and Dr. Annie Dodge Wanika was on a mission to change that. It was a challenge because her Native people weren't familiar with Western medical approaches and didn't trust them. But they did trust traditional healers. When we go into our Navajo ceremonies, and we're with the medicine man, and we're all there with our families inside the Hogan, and everyone's focusing their energies on the patient to get cured. The medicine man would, of course, do his prayers and his songs. And then, you know, there's all kinds of ceremonies. Gloria Ann Begay was a colleague of Annie Wanika. She recalls Annie Wanika, who passed away in 1997, telling the story of how she helped people feel more comfortable with Western medicine. This one particular ceremony, the medicine man would tie a small eagle feather to the hair 
near the top of the head. And he would tell the patient, you wear this feather as a symbol that you are, you know, a patient like being healed and that you have been treated with the ceremony and the songs and prayers and maybe even some herbs. And so that's an indication to your relatives and everybody that you're kind of in this sacred place for a while. So she explained, so when we go to the hospital, you're going to find that some of these kind of white skin looking doctors will diagnose you, maybe tell you what's wrong. They may even give you some medicine. So this is kind of like the feather. And it just shows that you have, you know, been treated. You've received some kind of medicine or maybe a shot to cure your health problem. Today on This Is Her Place, we're looking at three women whose work has been crucial to public health in Utah. Dr. Angela Dunn, state epidemiologist at the Utah Department of Health, who is currently on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Martha Hughes-Cannon, the driving force behind one of the first state-sponsored boards of health in the nation. And Dr. Annie Dodge-Wanika, a tribal elder and public health advocate in the Navajo Nation. All of these women had the challenge of using science to convince people to change their behavior. We'll learn about how each of them rose to this challenge. Ready, Tom? I'm ready. Okay. Welcome to This Is Her Place, a new podcast that tells the remarkable stories of Utah women past and present. I'm Naomi Watkins. And I'm Tom Williams. We'll be introducing you to poets and politicians, artists and activists, healers and homemakers, compelling women, women who inspire us with the unique ways each of them has truly made Utah her place. We really appreciate you joining us and ask that you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So today we're talking about three women who have worked in public health in Utah. It's a topic that's really top of mind, of course, during this COVID-19 pandemic we're all living through. Yeah, events like this really bring up the importance of public health to the forefront. But throughout history, ever since people have began gathering and living in communities, they've had to figure out things like disease and sanitation and hygiene. And over time, scientific breakthroughs like germ theory or vaccinations have always been challenged. They've always been followed by controversy and debate. It takes a long time to change behavior, especially when behavior is linked to religious or social beliefs. And some people don't like to be told what to do, whether it's about tuberculosis, COVID-19, childhood vaccinations. And we're seeing that issue play out right now over whether to wear a mask in public. Right. And addressing that resistance is really one of the biggest jobs of public health officials. And I can imagine that building that trust can be even harder as a woman. So let's start with Martha Hughes Cannon. She's been in the news in Utah the past couple of years because a statue of her is about to be placed in National Statuary Hall in Washington, D.C., and each state selects two statues. And out of 100 statues, currently only nine are of women. And four additional female statues, including Martha's, are in the works. So it's a big deal that Utah is sending the statue of Martha Hughes Cannon to Washington. Yes, and if people today know about Martha Hughes Cannon, It's probably because of her political career and the fact that she was the first female state senator in the country. But at the time, her main focus wasn't politics. It was her work as a physician. In fact, Martha Hughes Cannon's oldest granddaughter had no idea she'd been a state senator. She said, I didn't know that. 
until I read it in the obituary. I wish I would have known. I would have loved to have asked her about it. She knew she'd been a physician, and that was the profession that Maddie claimed as her main profession till she died. What was she? She was a physician. That's Constance Lieber, a historian who's studied the life of Martha Hughes Cannon. Martha Hughes Cannon also went by Maddie. And everything she did was cause for comment in Utah and abroad. Annie Laurie, who interviewed her after she was elected, she was a correspondent from California. Maddie said, well, men are wedded to the present. Women are promised to the future. And then Annie Laurie argued back, but you're not promised to the future. You have arrived. Ah, Maddie replied, the first woman senator. I hadn't thought of it in that light. I do seem to be a sort of milestone, don't I? Well, I will have to live up to my privileges. It took a lot of hard work for Martha's Cannon to arrive at that future as a well-respected physician and politician. She was born in Wales in 1857 and as a three-year-old immigrated with her parents to join the Latter-day Saints in the Utah Territory. Family stories say that the early death of her father helped push Martha Hughes Cannon toward medicine. I've seen it written that she was the first female physician in Utah. She was not by any means. But she would have known and come into contact with the women who were first. And they probably influenced her quite a bit. Her older sister, Mary, who was older, stronger, taller, her parents had decided Mary was going to be a physician. But Mary wasn't interested. She liked going to dances and things like that. And Maddie took over the medical books the family had bought Mary. And that's probably where it became solidified that she wanted to follow that profession. How unusual was that, that the, the family would want one of their daughters to be a physician? In the U.S., probably unlikely. In Utah, not so. Because of the men, the husbands of the family was, first of all, polygamy. So you had one husband often with a number of wives. And so many of the wives were very self-sufficient. And then the husbands were always being called on missions. And so Brigham Young himself said the women need to train to be physicians, to be lawyers, to take up the slack of some of these professions that the men couldn't fulfill because they were doing their church duty. And so at the age of 16, with her family's blessing and her church's support, Martha Hughes Cannon enrolled in the University of Deseret, which is now the University of Utah, to complete the pre-med requirements. She earned and saved money for medical school while working as a typesetter for the Deseret News, and then at the Women's Exponent, the women's rights newspaper edited by prominent Utah suffragist Emmeline B. Wells. I think her coming of age, more or less, would have been in the 1870s when she watched her mother, Emmeline B. Wells, Eliza Arsenault, important women who had the vote at that time, and they went to vote. And I think that was probably the time period in which she developed career goals. She was interested in what would, we would call uh, issues for personal health. Of course, public health was not a thing then. Her great-granddaughter said, when asked what really defined her great-grandmother, she said she was not sorted by the old. She was not afraid of the new. So she was, as we would say today, willing to think outside of the box. 
Her willingness to think outside the box may have prompted her decision to enroll in the University of Michigan's medical school. Most of the women, including the women in Utah who were already practicing medicine, went to Boston Women's Medical College. Maddie chose the University of Michigan, so it was an unusual path for her education. She practiced medicine to quite some acclaim for a short time in Algonac, Michigan. Then she went straight on to Philadelphia, where she attended the University of Philadelphia and the National School of Elocution and Oratory, which is a very important thing because she was training herself not to just be a physician, but to go on lecture tours to talk about medical issues. And at this point, because the curriculum at the University of Pennsylvania included hygiene, probably that course was one of the things she considered when she enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania. The course covered all the conditions pertinent to individual and public health, including the cause of epidemics, and the emphasis was on prevention. Martheus Cannon was savvy enough to realize that medical training and solid public speaking skills would be an effective combination. But even with her determination and her education, societal constraints sometimes impeded her plans. She, in the summer between her first and second year at the University of Michigan, she decided she wanted to go on a speaking tour. So she wrote President John Taylor of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints about her plans. Her original letter is lost, but he responded, Dear sister, we're pleased with the progress you're making in your studies and of the advantages that present themselves from which you can gain information and knowledge that may be of great benefit to you in the future. He complimented her on her zeal in preparing lectures. And then he said, probably you should finish your studies before you enter the lecture field. And then to really underline when this was that she lived, he said, If you do do a lecture tour, you must arrange for a father or brother to accompany her. You know, this was still very much the Victorian era. There were things you could and couldn't do. Martheus Cannon's lecture tour never panned out. Instead, she returned to Salt Lake City, set up her medical practice, and became the resident physician at the Deseret Hospital, a woman-run hospital in Salt Lake City. It was there she met and married Angus Cannon, becoming his fourth wife. This polygamous marriage meant periods of exile for Martha Hughes Cannon, as she hid from the federal government, which sought her testimony in the prosecution of polygamists. When she was not in exile, she maintained her medical practice, established a nursing school, and once Utah gained statehood in 1896, she famously ran for the state senate against her husband. Twelve were running, six Republicans, six Democrats. Maddie ran on the Democratic ticket, her husband on the Republican. They both might have been elected. They both might have not been elected, or one or the other. And as it happens, the issue of the day was free silver. That was the Democratic Party, and free silver swept the country. And it swept all the Democrats into office, including Maddie. Imagine the conversations between Maddie and Angus when the election results were announced. So Martha Hughes Cannon joined the first state Senate as the only woman and she was an effective legislator, putting her medical and oratory training to good use. She introduced in her political career several bills. She introduced only one bill that was not passed, and that was a bill that stipulated that the dangers of alcohol and narcotics be taught in the public schools. It's interesting that this bill didn't pass, since it seems very much like contemporary public health programs. 
and because of the well-known prohibition of alcohol and tobacco in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But during Martha Hughes Cannon's time, the Church's health code, known as the Word of Wisdom, was considered to be good advice, but not necessarily binding in the way it is today. But her most influential bill established the Utah State Board of Health, one of the first state-sponsored boards of health in the nation. And this, of course, was her greatest and most long-lasting achievement. It established a seven-member state board of health to which Maddie was then appointed. And the board was charged with the responsibility to encourage the establishment of local boards of health and to improve disease control, sanitation, and the water supply. They passed a resolution in the board to encourage, to advise the counties and the different cities to require children to be vaccinated. I think typhoid was the one at the time. And requiring in areas where typhoid was really a lot of cases, everyone to be vaccinated. They wanted to make it a requirement that they must do that, but they decided they could not. They weren't sure they had the authority to tell the counties and cities what they had to do. And furthermore, they said if we were to make it a law that everyone had to be vaccinated, there would probably be basically riots against it because, of course, the vaccinations were new. And this was at the very beginning of the State Board of Health being established, they knew that that was going to be a difficulty. And so they backpedaled and said, we advise it. Oh, these were the words. If we were to say they had to do it, we would expect a violent and determined opposition. That was their conclusion. Probably they were correct. So even today, we see this dance, this interaction between what medical professionals believe is true based on data and how they have to calculate what the public's response will be. Right. Do we have the authority to say you must? And if we do, do we have the means to enforce it? And what will we do if people defy it? It's very, very tricky, as you say, dance, which has not changed in the last 120 years. (laughs) And when the flu epidemic of 1918 and 1919 hit, these same types of conversations were happening then as they are now. At that point, Martha Hughes Cannon was in her 60s and had moved to California to be closer to her children. She was aware of the limitations of her medical knowledge, and so she turned to volunteer medical work instead of practicing medicine. You have to understand, she graduated from medical school in 1880. Things were so rudimentary. Medical knowledge was about to explode, and she just missed it. Anthrax, rabies, tetanus, diphtheria, the medical use of x-rays, all that was after her training. So she was sort of in an in-between place for physicians. She didn't feel like she knew enough modern medicine to practice anymore. I think this is a lovely thing. Just before the close of World War I, the Spanish flu epidemic, right, echoes of today, she, like many other physicians, received a government appointment for overseas service to serve as a physician during this pandemic that killed over 50 million people. She never served, but she was so proud of her appointment, she kept that letter framed in her home for the rest of her life. I'm really struck by the difficulty Martha Hughes Cannon and others had getting people to trust vaccines and how this is really similar to what we're experiencing with COVID-19 
and two vaccines today, actually, and that they landed on a strategy of not forcing people, but they focused on educating them instead. Yes, and that brings us to Dr. Angela Dunn. Not long after the coronavirus pandemic hit Utah, people started noticing Utah's head epidemiologist at press briefings. As Salt Lake Tribune described her as answering questions in rapid fashion, knocking them down one by one, using plain phraseology that required no advanced degree to grasp, but never lowered to the level of condescension. It went on to say it was reassuring that someone as capable as she is heading up Utah's efforts. And they even called her Utah's version of Dr. Anthony Fauci, referring, of course, to the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Angela Dunn was also the lone woman on a stage full of men heading Utah's response to the coronavirus. But she had the most experience and expertise. Yes, and this wasn't her first rodeo, as they say. It wasn't her first epidemic. Angela Dunn arrived in Sierra Leone for a fellowship with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in 2014, just as the Ebola epidemic was heating up. She was in charge of a rural village, setting up contact tracing and infection prevention. Cars could only take you so far in the village I was in, so oftentimes we'd have to hike for a few miles into the village from where the road ended, and it was really hot. We were in kind of long grass and a lot of brush, and so I'd rolled up my pant legs to cool off. And when we got to the village, I hadn't rolled them down, and a little boy there reached out to touch my skin, and a shockwave went through me because I hadn't had human contact for over a month. And just that feeling of human touch felt so threatening, and it was really a memorable moment in my experience there. And so that resonated. Of course, Ebola (laughs) Ebola seems scarier than coronavirus, but still that feeling of when our fellow humans become more of a threat to us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we are in a similar situation in coronavirus right now. You know, the way to fight this is through social distancing. And so we are going against our normal cultures of being close to people in times of stress and reaching out to people physically to protect ourselves and our loved ones from disease. So it's certainly an odd time. Part of Angela Dunn's job in Africa was to educate people and convince them to go against some deeply held cultural practices. A huge driver in the Ebola epidemic was their burial practices. So traditionally in West Africa, when a loved one passes away, they dress the decedent in their favorite clothes. They do a very hands-on ceremony, and that was actually spreading Ebola. So we had to work with village leaders to help them understand why it was so important to change their cultural practices and then also you know, try to figure out alternate cultural practices that would still allow them to say goodbye to their loved ones, but while keeping themselves safe. Angela Dunn says some of the same principles apply in her work today as Utah's top epidemiologist, where a big part of her job is to make sure people have good information. I see my role as providing the public with all of the knowledge about what I know and what I don't know in a very clear way so that they can understand what's going on in in the state of the pandemic. And so it's just going out every day, having a very clear message, not hiding anything, and being very upfront, again, about what's unknown. We're learning new things every day. So I think being very transparent with the public about the evidence and science is important. There's a lot of pressures from a variety of sectors and influences on how we respond to the pandemic. But ultimately, this is a health response first. Angela Dunn was born in Texas, went to high school there, 
but she moved around so much growing up that she doesn't claim one place as home. She was, however, deeply influenced by her mother's work and example. So growing up, um, my mom was a home health nurse, and she worked typically for Medicaid patients, and she definitely integrated our family into her practice. So during the holiday season and then throughout the year, we would routinely make visits to their house and, you know, provide company and small gifts and seeing carols in the Christmas season. So she really instilled in me the idea and the morals of giving back and giving to those who otherwise don't have a voice and who have more needs. To get into med school, everyone has to write a personal statement. And my personal statement going into med school was to become a clinical voice in the public health and health policy sphere. So this was definitely a goal of mine from the beginning, to be able to use medical knowledge and clinical medicine to serve populations. She attended medical school at the University of Miami in Florida, where the teaching hospital was Jackson Memorial Hospital. That was a safety net hospital, meaning they don't turn away anyone seeking care. The patient population included many who needed care the most, but had the least access to it. Angela Dunn started out specializing in obstetrics and gynecology. I was attracted to OBGYN because it took care of the of women in their whole lifespan. So it wasn't focused on any specific instance or disease or body part, but you know, you were able to serve the woman throughout her lifespan. But very quickly in, into my intern year in OBGYN, I realized that my skill set and my passion was better served on bigger picture ideas, so working to change the health system or to improve the health system. And so after my intern year in OBGYN, I switched to public health and preventive medicine. That switch led her to Africa and ultimately to Utah, where she now lives with her husband and two sons, working what she calls her dream job. Even in a pandemic situation, she said there isn't anywhere that she'd rather be working. Is there, speaking of this coronavirus pandemic, the briefings all probably run together. Is there one that stands out in your mind or any particular moment uh, during this pandemic that you'll really take with you? You know, there's several moments that come to mind. And of course, our first case when we identified that. Dr. Dunn. Good evening. Thank you for coming at such a late hour. Tonight, we are announcing our first positive case of novel coronavirus in the state of Utah. I remember sitting in my coworker's cube and we pulled up the lab results and it said positive for COVID-19. And we knew that that was going to start off this chain of, you know, working 15-hour days for months on end. And then the second one that really hit home was, of course, the first death. And that's how you realize that this pandemic is impacting families in a very permanent way, and it's something that we work every day to prevent, and that realization that we're not going to be able to prevent tragedy is is really painful. When asked about being the only woman in a sea of male leaders at COVID press conferences, Angela Dunn isn't phased. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's definitely apparent, but it's not something that I think about on a day-to-day at all. I just go out there and do the best work I know how to do and provide the best guidance and evidence. If someone has issues with my gender, then that's on them. So it's not something that I kind of respond to on a day-to-day basis. But I do know that I do hold a unique position and that I am one of the few females out in front here in Utah. She gracefully deflects again when asked whether she's a role model like Anthony Fauci, to whom she's sometimes compared. I mean, if I can be a role model, I think that that's... You know, a really humbling position to be and if I can inspire and encourage anyone out there to do good for their community, I think that I would welcome that. 
But like I said, I just go out there every day and try to have the best impact I can on Utah's health. And if that inspires people to do good, that's another win. you really see the thread of public service and public health running through Angela Dunn's life from her mom to her medical school application to her internship and now to her work here in Utah. And she's been so focused and determined and she's worked so hard. And now she's using everything she's learned in national, international contexts to make an impact in Utah. Yes, her leadership in the pandemic has been praised and deservedly so. But not far away in the Navajo Nation, the coronavirus has been much deadlier. As you know, the Navajo Nation covers parts of Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado. Yeah, and the infection rate in the Navajo Nation is among the highest in the country, even higher than it was in New York. And part of the issue is that if you don't have access to water, it's hard to wash your hands. And if you don't have roads and hospitals, it's really hard to seek treatment. And we're seeing a lot of public health advocates now working to get more resources and to build infrastructure and to lead public health campaigns. Yeah, I've seen these really cool public health campaign posters created by and for the Navajo people. And they may or may not know it, but they're building on the legacy of Annie Wanika. While Martha Hughes Cannon's medical career was winding down in the early 1900s, Annie Wanika was a young student at a boarding school on the Navajo Reservation. The school was hit hard by the flu pandemic. Annie had a mild case, but many of her classmates died. She helped care for others who were sick, and this started her on a path of public health that became her life's work. Her father was the first appointed chairman of the Navajo Nation, and Annie Wanika traveled with him around the vast reservation, learning politics and observing poor living conditions and the spread of disease. Eventually, she earned a degree in public health and was elected to the Navajo Council herself, only the second woman to be elected. She served seven terms, and at one point, she even defeated her husband, George, to win re-election, not unlike Martha Hughes Cannon, who also ran against her husband. Dr. Wanika was on the Navajo Council as the only woman council uh, member for almost three decades. And that was unprecedented. And she was always given the assignments of health and education. That's Gloria Ann Begay, a Navajo Nation citizen who is a colleague and friend of Annie Wanika. Gloria is a retired educator and community leader who currently works on health and food issues on Navajo Nation. And she was always very so solution oriented. Of course, she could listen to all the facts and stats and issues, but she says, look, we need to get out and solve problems because we can sit around and complain all the time, but unless we start working on addressing the issues, you know, we'll never get anywhere. Annie Wanika's father stressed to her the importance of having a strong command of both the Navajo and English languages. He viewed them as the key to not only communication, but to good leadership. Her language skills helped her create a Navajo to English medical dictionary with the help of Western doctors and traditional healers. At the time, many English medical terms did not have Navajo translations, and Annie Wanika, she changed that. She was always working on all kinds of different projects. She was telling me she'd take her old pickup truck and she'd buy a bolt of material and a roll of wire, and she'd take a little a hammer and a few little nails 
And so she said she'd start driving out to the homes of these Navajo people. And at that time, there were a lot of them that lived on dirt floor hogans. And so she'd sit and have coffee and chat with the family, get to know them a little. And of course, she would look at their little home and see what they have. And if they didn't have kind of like a food cupboard, she'd say, I have a gift for you. And she'd go back out to her truck, bring a couple of those crate boxes in with her fabric and everything. And she'd set up the crate boxes like a little shelf unit. And she put the curtain, tie the curtain onto a wire and made it kind of like a curtain on the box. And she showed them how to open the curtain and close it. And then she'd tell them, you put your food, you know, in these crates, because what you want to do is try to keep the dirt and the dust off of your food. Because sometimes those dirt particles have, you know, they have sicknesses in them and those can make you sick. And so she kind of gave them some training on, you know, how to keep the dust down in their dirt floor hogans and stuff like that. So she was educating them and she wasn't kind of condescending or anything. She was doing it with kindness. And these Navajo people, you know, really appreciated that. In addition to traveling the Navajo Nation to visit people in person, Aniwanika broadcast a radio show in the Navajo language as a way to quickly get information out about disease prevention and treatment. Now, that would have to take, of course, people having electricity. She knew she had to get the word out, and radio was the best, and it is still the current best communicator of messages and information out to the Navajo people, especially those in the far remote places that are still out on the dirt roads, you know, and in the hinterlands, if they have electricity. Gloria Begay says there's a strong connection between Annie Wanika's work and what's happening in the Navajo Nation during the COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of Navajos still don't have electricity, you know, around like 30%. And then they'll bring water. And we only have three or 4,000 miles of paved road in our country of the size of West Virginia. So there's still a lot of remoteness, isolation out there on the reservation. And I know this pandemic going on and our children are staying home. Many of them don't even have laptops, access to internet, very little broadband (laughs) out here. So many of these students, you know, can't do their homeworks. And even our college students are now at home And the council has just established to try to set up more broadband and hotspots so that these college kids can keep doing their online college coursework and they get priority. But we've tried to figure out innovatively how to deal with some of these issues, uh, like of infrastructure here on Navajo. And Annie had to deal with that. Annie Wanika attacked problems not only at an individual level, but at systemic levels too. She had gone out to the homes and seen a lot of them still living with dirt floor homes and hogans. She went to the council and asked for appropriations for lumber and nails. And she says, I want all these homes to have wood floors. And so she went and campaigned for better housing. And then, of course, advocated for more homes to be built. And then also, like I said, with lack of water out there, it was even more so in the 40s and 50s. And so she even had 
a special project of having outhouses built <laughs> next to these homes out on the reservation. So she'd look at the deeper issues. You know, you look at the real underlying deep issues and then you start chipping away from there and build up. Annie Wainika's work extended beyond the Navajo Nation. She worked on a federal level for Navajo causes and was frequently consulted by federal legislators because of her deep public health knowledge. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1963 and two honorary doctorate degrees. She was also inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Annie Wainika's work is still pertinent today. For instance, just a couple of days ago, I got a call from one of our local news reporters and she said, Gloria, everyone's telling us, wash your hands, wash your hands. But she says, who is listening to our medicine people? And I said, that's right. I know I um, have been advised to drink sage as a tea, you know, to build my body immune system and to smoke cedar and sage to cleanse the air because it kills the bacteria up in the air and things like that. And I said, you know, maybe we should contact some of our medicine people. That definitely sounds like what Ani Wanika would do, combining modern public health principles with time-honored cultural healing rituals. Let's take a listen to this rare clip of Annie Dodge Wanika from 1958. I get the impression that the entire reservation, the entire area within the sacred mountains is, is like a church. I guess that's the way to look at it, from your view. <laughs> <laughs> what about your view? <laughs> well, we can do different ceremonies, and we don't call it church, so it's very hard to say church. Yes, of course. <laughs> In a certain sense, the Hogan is really the sacred place of worship. Isn't that's it? right. We need to have more, in my opinion, Navajo heroes like Annie Wanika, because that way they can learn, you know, from these past leaders are people that did some good work for the Navajo people and lessons could be learned from that. So there you have it. Martha Hughes Cannon, Angela Dunn, and Annie Wanika. Three women who felt the call to work in public health service from a young age pursued advanced degrees, and then spent the rest of their lives making the world a healthier place. And you notice the theme of trust runs through all these stories. Trust is built by meeting people where they are and respecting and humbly working with them over time to change hearts and minds and communities. Yeah, I really I really enjoy following Angela Dunn's Twitter feed. And one of her recent tweets was right after Utah was reopening with the coronavirus. And it's a selfie of her at the Lunatic Fringe Salon with her hairdresser, and they're both wearing masks. And she wrote, giving my hair some much-needed love in the new COVID-19 way. Lunatic Fringe is taking all of the right steps to prevent COVID spread. And I love that she was calling out this business for doing it right, also supporting them, and then building trust, showing that if she was willing to get a haircut, that the rest of us can feel safe to do that too. Yes, and... uh if this current pandemic demonstrates anything, it's the need for strong leadership in public health, right? The kind of leadership that Angela Dunn is showing. And we're fortunate we've we've had that now. We've also had that in the past with Anyone Ika and Martha Hughes Cannon.
We'd like to thank today's guests and thank you for joining us on This Is Her Place. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please take a minute to rate and subscribe to the show so you'll never miss out on future episodes. To find out more about the amazing women mentioned on today's episode, visit our website at www.thisisherplace.org. While you're there, subscribe to our newsletter for a ton of insider content. This Is Her Place relies on listener support. If you'd like to play a part in the creation of future episodes, please click the Donate tab at our website to contribute. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at This Is Her Place Podcast and at Twitter handle This Is Her Place. Questions? Comments? We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at thisisherplace at gmail.com and perhaps we'll discuss your thoughts on a future episode. This Is Her Place is made possible through the generous support of Janet Dana Stowell, Gary Anderson, the Year of the Women Initiative at Utah State University, and the Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at USU. This episode was written by Allison Pond, Naomi Watkins, and me, Tom Williams. Our executive producer is Patrick Mason. This is Her Place is produced by Allison Pond with research assistance provided by Meg Rasmussen and editing by Dorothy Abrams. This podcast was recorded on Goshu, Navajo, Paiute, Shoshone, and Ute land. Our theme is composed by Lindsay Wheeler. Additional music provided by Al Kuhn, Blue Dot Sessions, Verdell Primo, Johnny Mike, and Robert Adson. We'll be back again soon with another episode of This Is Her Place. You're listening to Access Utah. That was a complete episode of This Is Her Place. It's a new podcast, and you can find it at thisisherplace.org. There's an event. You can come and meet the team and um, and uh, go behind the scenes of the podcast. That's coming up a week from today, Wednesday, October 21st, 7.30 p.m., Ellen Eccles Theater in downtown Logan. You can get tickets, which are pay-as-you-can, uh, to the socially distanced uh, event at Ellen Eccles Theater. Uh, you can get tickets at cashearts.org. We'll have uh, more with uh, podcast co-host Naomi Watkins following this break. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. Support also comes from Cache Valley Parade of Homes, presenting the 2020 Virtual Home Tour October 23rd through November 29th. Cash Valley Home Builders Association, serving the community and promoting ethical business practices in the home building business since 1973. Information at cvhba.com. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we have uh, featured on the program today a full episode from the new podcast, This Is Her Place. Um, you can find it at thisisherplace.org. And uh, we are joined once again by co-host Naomi Watkins. Uh, thanks for uh, being back with us, Naomi. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so that's we, we titled this episode, I think for good reason, A Matter of Trust. And, and these issues, I think, uh, came up with all three of the women profiled. Yeah, definitely. And we're still seeing that. How many more months now into the pandemic? Um, leaders trying to gain the trust of the public to adhere to certain um, public health guidelines. 
And as you mentioned at the top of the program, you know, some parallels, past and present, in, in the past and present vaccinations, right? And we might have that again when we get a, a COVID vaccine. Uh, vaccine. Yes, let's hope, right? <laughs> right. Let's hope we get the vaccine and that everybody takes it, yeah. right? Um, and that it works. <laughs> and that it works. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I, I want to, uh, so uh, anything from this particular episode that you'd like to highlight before we maybe talk in a little more general? Um, well, you know, listening to the pod, the episode again, I was really struck by the story of Annie Dodge Wanika, particularly her efforts to work um, with Navajo healers and Western med- medical doctors um, to build trust between those two communities and then to take um, those trust-building efforts and bring them to the Navajo people, right, um, to really bring the best of both worlds. And I really love that um, her efforts did that and have and are still really pertinent right down at the Navajo Nation right now um, as COVID-19 has, you know, really rampaged that, those, you know, that area of the state um, and still working to do a lot of things that Annie, Annie Dodge Wanika was trying to do back in the mid, you know, mid-1950s. I really appreciated learning her story. I hadn't hadn't even, I think, heard her name, so it was wonderful to, to hear her story. Wonderful to hear her voice. We found some archival tape. Um, so uh, that leads me to my next question, Naomi, which is, why tell these stories? Why, why are these stories important? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, um, I mean, one, I think because the themes and the stories are still pertinent now, right? Um, none of us living now have lived through a pandemic before. Um, and so I think it's, I think it's strengthening and heartening to know that people have lived through pandemics in the past. Um, that we've continued forward, and we could probably learn a few lessons from what people did before. People were, like we said in the episode, we're arguing about masks then, arguing about vaccines then, um, and so, you know, that's not new. That could be, like we've said, very disheartening, but I think it's also be really grounding to know that humans have done this before and we have survived. Just have a couple minutes left. I wonder, um, is there a story... A person that we profiled five episodes now um, that's the most interesting, most compelling to you? What jumps to mind? Oh, that's hard. Yeah. That's so hard. All, all hard of them to probably. Answer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I'm thinking about the, the last episode that we did of the season with um, Betty Sawyer, who is a, um, an African-American woman who lives now. She's alive now doing work um across the state to improve, um, really, you know, relationships and um, really doing a lot to amplify the history of Juneteenth and to have that celebrated um, across the state. Um, she's been doing this work for a very long time, you know, makes the point that Black Lives Matter and um, police brutality and issues that seem that are also have been go- ongoing with the pandemic, um, have been things that they've been working on for a very long time. Yeah, this is an interesting uh, episode. We've titled this Who Tells Your Story? And we paired Betty Sawyer with May Timbimbu Perry, who is you know, a great storyteller of, uh, of uh, the Shoshone uh, you know, tribe. Right, and I think it's important, um, you know, this, obviously we narrate, but um, I think the, having these stories told in the women's own words or by people who knew them is really important. Um, I mean, that was a big piece of May and Betty's lives, right, and their work, that they want to get their perspectives 
um, known by other people. Well, uh, uh, here at the end, I wanted to put a plug in, of course, for the event that's coming up. So um, Patrick Mason, the executive producer, Naomi, you'll be uh, coming up to Logan to be on stage. Um, we'll have uh, some other team members uh, via Zoom. Our our sound engineer is uh, lives in on Staten Island, so she'll be... Uh, we couldn't convince her to drive all the way out, so she's she's going to uh, jo- join by Zoom. Uh, so we're going to go behind the scenes, uh, and this will be a, a nice opportunity for listeners to, uh, if they liked what they heard today, liked the podcast, definitely encourage them to go to uh, thisisherplace.org and listen to some episodes, and then come and uh, and go behind the scenes with us. Uh, it would be good to, to see you again, uh, Naomi, on stage. Yes, with a mask. With a mask, yes, we'll be a mask. <laughs> That's right. And this will be limited seating, limited numbers in the El Necos Theater, and socially distanced. And so, hope that you'll come. Uh, so, this is Wednesday, the twenty-first, week from today, um, at seven thirty p.m. El Necos Theater in downtown Logan. And uh, we invite you to hear some sound clips from the films, tell some compelling stories, and uh, go behind the scenes of the podcast. Um, and this is uh, sponsored by uh, Utah Public Radio. Uh, the way to get tickets, which are pay as you can, is casharts.org. Go to casharts.org. Well, Naomi, it's uh, it's been uh, great to talk to you again. Yes, likewise. L- looking forward to seeing you uh, again with our masks on uh, in in a week. Yes, looking forward to it. Okay, thanks, Naomi. Thanks. And again, uh, this is herplace.org and tickets at cashartsorg uh, And uh, thanks for listening today. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and utahhumanities.org. Improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.